0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Who knew what and when? And was it an ethics breach? That's what a report by the Federal Ethics Commissioner has been trying to get to the heart of in the WE Charity scandal involving members of the Trudeau government. How did this charitable organization end up with a federal contract to run a program worth billions of dollars to help students get summer jobs. Was it because of the relationship with people like former Finance Minister Bill Morneau? Well, the report from Mario Dion was released yesterday, so let's talk about what it found out. Joining us now is David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David.
2: Morning, Simi. Yeah, it's been, you know, you sketched out what's been sort of a political uh, football in Parliament Hill and, and in the country for uh, about a year, and uh, you know this was this was really, you know, I would say the Trudeau government's biggest misstep uh, in all of the pandemic uh, stuff it it uh, it it went through. And Remember what what happened here is about a year ago the Trudeau government sole sourced a contract uh, to the We Charity and, and some other We foundations. The We Charity group would have got about forty five million dollars to hand out nine hundred million dollars worth of student grants program never got off the ground we withdrew but the political stink uh, is still there um and i think the liberals think they're out from under it now but the opposition doesn't think so very
1: much yeah are they though like given that ethics commissioner's report yesterday what did it say
2: yeah, so essentially what the commissioner's name is Mario Dion, and his job in this, or the question he wanted to ask is, did the, uh, public office holder, a prime minister, a finance minister, did that public office holder advance his or her own interest or the interests of their friends and families? And then, if they did, they would be in a conflict because they're supposed to think about the taxpayer's interest. So as far as the prime minister goes, Dion said no, he cannot find uh based on the law that Trudeau uh, violated the Conflict of Interest Act even though Trudeau himself has said on the record at times, yes, I guess I might have been in a perceived conflict of interest, maybe I should have recused myself. Trudeau said that, but he didn't break the law. Okay, great. What about Bill Morneau, the former finance minister? Yes, he did break the law. In fact, violated three provisions of the Conflict of Interest Act, and here's why. Dion said uh, uh, it's, he, 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 uh, satisfied himself that Morno and the We Charities founders, the brothers Craig and Mark Kielberger, were friends. So they were friends. So, so Dion established that relationship and then said, and Morno gave his friends preferential access to the finance department, uh, participated in this sole source deal when he should not have talked about it. And therefore, Morno advanced the interests of his friends, the Kielbergers, whose Charity was gonna get forty-five million bucks. And uh and so he he got dinged. So Morno guilty, Trudeau not on this one. The political fallout, the way that the commissioner uh labels these reports, it's um you know, if it was me, it would be, you know, Aiken one for my first investigation, Aiken two for my first invest second investigation, and so on. Well, the report yesterday was Trudeau three because this was the PM's third ethics investigation, and he was found guilty on the first two, the Aga Khan vacation and the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Trudeau puts one in the wind column on this one. And for Morneau, it was Morneau, too, because Morneau got dinged uh while well, he was finance minister because he forgot, you'll remember this, he forgot that he owned a villa in France oh, and right. didn't declare that on forms that he's supposed to fill out. So the opposition say, because of those, like, yes, the Trudeau liberals still have ethics issues that they want to hammer them on, Uh but the liberals yesterday were all about, oh, vindication uh, cleared, nothing to see here, of course, so... Uh, Kind of predictable, but there you go.
1: Yeah, exactly. What Did did Bill Morneau have anything to say about that yesterday?
2: Not really. I mean, Morneau's out of politics at this point in time. And this is the other thing that a lot of uh, those who may not have any skin in the game on this issue feel is, even though Dion found that he broke the Conflict of Interest Act, there's no penalties, there's no fines. It's just a black mark on right. Morneau's time in office or another black mark. So, you know, that that a lot of people say there's got to be some sort of sanctions. There wasn't when Trudeau broke the law. There was no mm-hmm. sanctions for him, no penalties, no fines. Um, And so, you know, it's uh, it's sort of done and dusted. And again, for the liberals in Parliament, they don't really care about Morneau anymore because he's not their issue. And they just cared about the PM and the fact that the PM on this one was vindicated.
1: Right. Another day. All right, David, thank you.
2: Okay, no problem. Let me cheer.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: So no ah, like
1: oh, that music. We know what that is. Joining us now to talk more about that is Raji Sohal, our morning show contributor. Good morning, Raji.
4: Good morning, Simi. A lot of people are talking about how Friends is coming back together. Kind of. They're not making new episode. They're not doing new content per se. Here's what's happening. They're doing an HBO special on May 27 is when it airs. And it's basically the cast of Friends talking about how nice it was to be on Friends with some new guests. That are random.
1: (laughs) Okay. This sounds so strange to me because there's so much hype about this, right? And then I was saying this to our producer, Greg, this morning. Am I the only person not excited about this? I see so many stories about it, but they're just sitting around talking about being on Friends.
4: I think they're doing it because it would be super awkward to try to remake friends, I think, to build to the hype that it was before. I just don't think it's possible. So I think that what they're trying to do is to avoid disappointment and, hey, let's bring in some star power but the, from elsewhere, and we'll go over the episodes that were successful, you know? Um, but the star power is super random. Can I tell you some of the, yeah. the characters that will... Okay, well, uh, we're going to see David Beckham. What? We're going to see Malala, Lady Gaga... James Corden. Reese Witherspoon.
1: Like Well she played she played Rachel's younger sister. Yeah. Uh, Reese Witherspoon was on Friends, So that I can understand.
4: She, she was. She I don't know what Lady Gaga presence. and
1: Malala are doing on that show.
4: Yeah, and then Cindy Crawford was wasn't not. Wasn't she had on an episode? Friends. No, she wasn't. No. Elle McPherson was. She was, yes. And it's just, it's all very confusing. I think that and Mindy Kaling, Kaling is on it. Um, Kit Harrington is. I think Justin John Bieber, <laughs> like, was Justin Bieber even alive? I don't
5: think
1: so, no. <laughs> um, okay, listen, let me ask you this then, Raji. Do you think Friends, as a show, holds up?
4: Okay, I'm going to get some hate for this, but feel free to uh, send it my way at Rogie at cknw.com. It doesn't hold up.
1: It does not hold
4: up. It's really difficult to go back and what I've tried. I've tried numerous times. Anytime I've gotten the flu um, or a long cold in the last 10 years, I've put friends on and tried to, and it doesn't work. Um, It doesn't hold up because the content in it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that there's no diversity on the show and I feel like if something's really old, then I can watch it with this like suspension of disbelief, but not friends. It's like a little bit awkwardly too, too recent. And this group of adults that hangs out in that like one living room for that long, <laughs> you know, what? Just
1: a I bit- have to, there's a house and I pass this house uh, every once in a while. And I just have to mention this. It's down on Southwest Marine Drive. Uh, it is between 49th and Blenheim. On the south side of, okay. of Southwest Marine Drive, and it is they what they've done because of, I guess, the restrictions and COVID and all that. They have recreated the Central Perk uh, coffee shop on their front lawn with the signage and everything. So I did a double take the first time I went by, and I was like, "Wait, what is that?" And yeah, it is, they have like the Central Perk coffee shop from Friends right on their front lawn, and I often see people sitting out there just chatting and having a good time. Oh,
4: wow, that is some fan commitment. I know.
1: that's I cute so too. That I'm is cute. That. Yeah, that's the one thing that holds up from Friends. Right, and the rest of that it, it it's you're a like, a little bit
5: cute.
1: There's other shows like you watch Seinfeld, and you think, you know what? They knew how to do this. They did eight years. They went out on top. Boom, done. Uh, And that's it. And I think Seinfeld, when you watch it, it's still funny.
4: Yeah, uh, Friends is not funny. If anything, it's irritating. But I think that although this reunion is probably not going to be that entertaining marketing-wise, it's a bit of a stroke of genius. Like, how else would they get anyone to watch this? Um, they needed to make it current. They needed to make it relevant. I'm just waiting for these emails to come in.
1: Raji at ccanw.com. I think originally they had done this to for the launch of HBO Max, right, which is the yeah. HBO subscription service. But then COVID happened, so they couldn't do this, everything, and it got canceled. It got pushed back. It seems to me the moment passed. Like, they probably should have said, yeah, you know what? It was a good idea a year ago. We're not doing it anymore.
4: I think celebrities are still pretty desperate to have more presence than they're, they're getting right now because of the pandemic. So I think that also had to play into the cast of characters that they're bringing into this uh, reunion of sorts. What is your favorite old sitcom? Oh, Seinfeld for sure right Seinfeld it still holds up and like I still oh yeah I still laugh really hard at anything from that show
1: I know I too. I feel like the jokes in there are classic right you're they still people even if you never watch Seinfeld you're probably telling a Seinfeld joke and you don't even realize you're telling a Seinfeld joke
4: and I still get down with old Simpsons Yeah, you can't go wrong.
1: There's so many of them that predicted the future. How can you possibly go wrong (laughs) Pretty (laughs) much. So yeah, I can see that those two, but friends, you're right. I think it does not hold up as much. And I'm sure there's people out there who disagree with us. And as we said, feel free to email Raji on that one. Raji at cknw.com. Are you going to watch this?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. See, we just talked about it. Now you said you're still going to watch it. Oh, yes. I'll probably watch it twice, Simi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my
1: goodness. You'll watch it twice. Right, who was your favorite?
4: Um, I'm going to say that the number, like, the most compelling thing for me about Friends is the fashion. And because they're of the era that's cool again now... I would say that right now, it would be Rachel. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I saw that. You did, hey?
1: I have more than once been told, including by my children, that there's a little oh, no, Monica I in me. Say. Yeah, there's oh, a little no! Monica in me. So that's, I knew that was but I'm okay, coming. that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> Raji, thanks so much. Thanks, Simi. We'll talk to you a little bit later. That is Raji So our morning contributor.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: When are we going to reopen here in BC? I don't think it's too soon to start talking about that. People need something to look ahead to. Uh, For sure, businesses need that something to look ahead to. We know that cases are going down. Uh, Other jurisdictions have plans that they are putting forward. It gives businesses a path to getting things up and running again. But None of that has been spelled out for BC just yet. Dr. Bonnie Henry, I said, it's not going to be really coming to think about that until after the May long weekend. They're really focused right now on making sure people stick with the restrictions through that long weekend. But it is becoming a point of frustration in the business community. Joining us now is Laura Jones, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Good morning, Laura.
6: Good morning, Simi.
1: So across the country, then, are other provinces kind of putting forward their plans for reopening?
6: Well, the province that is the furthest ahead on this is Saskatchewan. And so the premier of Saskatchewan has put forward a plan that is tied to vaccination uh, rates. And it's a three-step plan so far. And, um, yeah, so they, uh, you know, there are. Provinces like Saskatchewan that are ahead of British Columbia in terms of looking at the plan. Of course, there are some that we would not want to look to as a model, and Ontario is top of that list uh, where they've just extended restrictions uh, to June 2nd. And, um, you know, those restrictions are very, very restrictive. So you can't even go out on a golf course in Ontario right now, um, let alone get your hair cut. Um, You haven't been able to get your hair cut in Ontario for 173 days running while in parts of Ontario, in Toronto and Peel, for example. So uh, we wouldn't want to look to Ontario uh, for what they're doing, but Saskatchewan looks to be a good model for us.
1: Right. That seems crazy. I've often wondered that about BC, like for the most part, It feels like, you know, BC has tried to balance all of those different factors and keeping a lot of things open that other provinces haven't kept open.
6: Oh, for sure. Uh, Business owners, you know, we actually surveyed on this and business owners in in British Columbia, the vast majority of them are very grateful to um, Bonnie Henry, Adrian Dix, uh, the government for the job they've done in being pragmatic, practical, really doing everything, um, you know, we need to do on the health side, but at the same time, trying to protect as much as possible, um, for uh, business owners and and others recognizing that there are other um, things that are important, mental health being one of them, um, people being able to stay connected to their jobs and their livelihoods. And for business owners, that's been a blessing. I've talked to so many people, particularly in retail um, here, who have said, oh, my goodness, how on earth are business owners coping in Ontario um, with these much more severe uh, lockdowns? So there's a lot of gratitude um, there. Having said that, of course, there's also um, those businesses right across the country, particularly those that support events um, that are just really, really um, in in tough. You know, they've been they've been shut down right since the beginning of the pandemic, and the supports don't cover. You know, I was talking to a business owner yesterday, and you know, the, the he's he's accessing the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy, but those supports cover, you know, maybe a tenth of his costs, and he's more of a mid-sized business. He's millions of dollars um, into debt, into lost sales um, as a result of uh, of being uh, completely shut down and really frustrated about the lack of any kind of clarity of, um, about when events, um, even small events, might be able to um, be on the table again.
1: Right, so what kind of a difference would it make then, Laura, if, if the province were to say, okay, here's the plan, here's how we envision the reopening, what can business people do with that?
6: Well, people can plan, and I think everyone can relate to this. I mean, it's not just the businesses that are supporting these events, but it's the people who want to know whether they can have a wedding, right? And how many people might they be able to have at that wedding? Um, and you, you you might not like the answer, but at least you can um, start to plan. Right now, we have this... You know, we had this vaccine hope that's now turned into vaccine reality. We have over half of the eligible um, uh, population for vaccines in in British Columbia have, have had their first shots, um, but that's still married with this kind of vague uncertainty about when we've got some milestones about getting back to um, some of you know what's what's really important to being you know normal again, and that's really frustrating because for some of these businesses. What they describe is it's like the light at the end of the tunnel. They can still see it, but it's getting further away instead of getting closer. Um, and, you know, we know those last miles of a race are harder, but but boy, does that psychologically become even more difficult and financially reality right. become more difficult when it feels like the markers keep getting further out in the distance, even though it feels like we should be getting closer with more with more people vaccinated.
1: So in this province, then, given that, you know, retail and all that kind of stuff is still open here, unlike, you know, places like Ontario, are we talking mainly about, you know, restaurants and the hospitality and the tourism industry? To give them a plan,
6: yeah, uh, we're definitely um, restaurants, um, businesses, gyms who haven't been able to do you know group fitness and rely heavily on that. Um, dance studios who have adult classes um, who've been shut down. Um, for that, but, but the events, the people in the events, the people who support the lighting, um, the sound systems for big events, the tents, all of, there's a lot of businesses that are behind the scenes supporting, um, bigger weddings, uh, funerals, business events, conferences, um, if you think about all the businesses involved um, in those activities, um, they are they are really, really um, suffering uh, right now, and we're hearing a lot from them. And they're particularly concerned about um, there's the lack of certainty, but there's also, you know, the federal programs, for example, in the budget, the wage support and the, the rent support, the formulas for these programs are going to start to be ratcheted down um, on the expectation that things are more open. But there's a timetable for that now, and there's no timetable for the reopening. So another important thing is to say that, you know, the supports, need to be in place for these businesses until the restrictions are lifted. The other group that's heavily affected, of course, is those that depend on travel. Um, and many businesses who rely on the border being open, that's another big uncertainty. When will that border be um, open again? When can we travel more? And I think there's some frustration looking at, you know, how far behind we are um, to our, with our, when we look at our neighbors to the, to the south.
1: Right. And the, it sounds to me like our neighbors to the south would like that border to be open.
6: Yeah, I mean, I I think there are a lot of people who now are look. We understand the health concerns, and we, we you know we have to be patient with this with these last miles. Um, on travel, but I, I you know it feels like some of the restrictions can we not use, do a better job using rapid testing, for example? can we not be creative about how we allow people to um, move around? some of these restrictions these are huge. This is a huge deal. I mean one of the things I, I, I have to say that I, I get a little bit unhappy with listening to leaders across Canada when they talk about these restrictions is they don 't come with much of an apology or um, explanation that of course we understand. These are huge, huge things we're asking of people not to be able to see your um, uh, friends and, and relatives across the border, not being able to travel outside your, your you know, your health authority. Um, these are, this is a big deal. And we, we don't get, you know, we don't get yeah. a lot of sort of recognition of that, I find, you know, that it's sort of straight to why we're doing it for the health uh, reasons, which I I'm not arguing um, with that, um, particularly, although I do think we could do a better job um, protecting health and allowing more uh, freedom. Uh, But but these are big, big restrictions we're asking people to endure.
1: So true. Uh, Laura, thanks for your time on that this morning. Thank you. Laura Jones, Executive Vice President, Chief Strategic Officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, saying that, yes, you know, BC has done a good job, but we need a plan, she says here in BC, so that businesses can look ahead and start to think about ways to dig themselves out of the situation, start planning for the future. If you're a business owner out there, you want to weigh in, simi at
0: cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, the Vancouver Whitecaps are back in action this weekend versus Sporting KC. You can, of course, hear all the action on our sister station, AM 730 on Sunday morning. For us, though, we thought we would check in with Whitecaps coach Mark Dos Santos to find out how the team is doing. They're sitting at fifth in the Western Conference, of course. The matchup Sunday, though, being the first meeting of the season between these two particular teams. Uh, Good morning, Mark. Thanks for being here.
3: Good morning, Sammy. Thanks for having me.
1: Now let's talk about how this week went. Um uh, I know that was the first win for your opposing team this week. And how, what did you think about the team?
3: Well the week went it started well with the, the win against Montreal. Uh but then in the middle of the in the middle of the week I uh I think we traveled right away and we had this game against um uh, we had this game right away against uh, Minnesota, so not a big break. Uh, and in the game against Minnesota, we, we had to make sure that we addressed uh, recovery and made sure the guys went. But I think overall, the team answered very well. We played a very good game, but we, we weren't able to score the, the goal that we needed.
1: Okay, so you're feeling good then about the amount of rest before Sunday's game?
3: we always have we always want more rest you know but it's the way the schedule is right now uh, having three games in 9 days is one thing but when you have uh, travel a lot of travel involved is another thing and uh, we we have to manage that well with our performance group um because we we did play home if you want to call it home against Montreal but then we traveled and in and out again in Minnesota and now we're traveling to Kansas City so when you're, you're going through a, a spell like that in, in nine days, you have to make sure that uh, the recovery is the right one, uh, right. the players involved are the right ones, and we're thinking about all of that right now.
1: And how has the team adjusted then to playing like home in quotation marks, being down in Utah then? Are, are everybody's families down there? Like, is everybody adjusting okay?
3: Uh, yeah, Inside the possibilities, yes, inside the reality. But it's never perfect, right? Because you, you, a lot of, uh, of us still have our families in Vancouver. Um, you know, when we're playing in the road, there's a lot of fans that support the opposing team. And when we play home, there's nobody apart from, from our, local, our families, that, families that are with us. So we're, I would tell you that we're adjusting the best we can uh, inside the, this new reality.
1: Right. It must be so hard, though. Like when you've your whole life, when you've been playing this sport and playing it hard and you're used to the sound of the fans, how do you keep up that like the momentum, the energy without hearing that roar behind you?
3: Unfortunately, we got used to it. It's sad to say uh, that we got used to it since we went to NLSS back and then to Portland. And it's not something we want. And it was special to hear the fans uh, in Minnesota it was kind of a new environment. It's weird to say that when all your career you're used to fans. Um, but uh, we know it's just a faith in the world right now and a reality in the world right now, and we hope that soon everything's going to get back to normal.
1: Oh, we sure hope so. Listen, best of luck on Sunday. We'll talk to you next week, okay?
3: Thank you very much. Nice speaking to you. Nice
1: to talk to you too. That's Mark Dos Santos, a Whitecaps head coach. Their next game is Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. Our sister station, AM 730, will have that for you. We check in every week with Mark to find out how the Whitecaps are doing.
0: This is mornings with Simi.
1: Well, if you can't drink indoors this summer, should there be more places for you to have a drink outside in the city of Vancouver anyway? Well, that is something that Vancouver city council is going to be talking about. They're considering four public spots for legal alcohol consumption. Uh, the vote coming up on Tuesday for more on this. We're joined now by Vancouver city Councilor Sarah Kirby young. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Jenny. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So what are these four spots that you guys are talking about?
7: So there's four locations, uh, deliberately intended to be in different neighborhoods across the city. So to spread out uh, sort of it from an equity perspective, one is a brand new site at 800 Robson. So that's the brand new plaza that was completed.
1: Okay, so right downtown. Um, And then where else? Yeah. Uh, The other one is
7: in the Cambie neighborhood at Cambie and 17th. So if you think uh, right in the heart of the Cambie village. Um, And then you have Fraser and 27th. Um, and another one, which would be a new location um, on West 4th at 4th and Maple in Kitsilano.
1: Okay, and how do you think these have gone in the past? Like, I know we tried this last summer, and how do you think those went?
7: Um, I visited uh, pretty much all of them uh, last year, particularly um, one that was established off of Fraser Street, and they were great. They're very low-key, fairly small, um, usually between two uh, blocks off, a small block between two streets, and some picnic tables that are set up, and Um, You know, in some cases, some, you know, nice sort of gentle lights that were um, put there and just an opportunity for people to bring out a beer or or, or a glass of wine and chat with their neighbors and be outside safely.
1: Okay. And so what's your feeling then about how this is going to go next week? Is this, do you think, is Council in agreement on this?
7: Yeah, Council approved it last summer and I suspect that we'll see it approved again. There weren't any issues with these. Um, You know, there's some concerns um, as to whether or not there would be any issues with public drinking, but it was pretty genteel and pretty low key. These are... You know, close to sort of um, neighborhoods and they're supported by the BIA. So they're well-maintained and looked after. So I don't anticipate any issues with it. I think the bigger question really is that this wasn't the biggest need and desire. What we heard from people loud and clear um, that they really wanted was to be able to have um, the ability to drink in parks um, and in green space. So this was really a very small activation by the city of Vancouver. And what people really want is the ability to enjoy alcohol outside in their local parks.
1: And this is what I was wondering, like, we've been talking about this for almost a year and a half now. Why haven't we made a whole lot of progress on that idea of people being allowed to drink in parks? if If they can do it in a plaza, why not do it a block over or half a block over in a park?
7: Yeah, I think that was a a, uh, sort of a miss on the process by the Vancouver Park Board last year. They did require um, an adjustment from the province in terms of the legislation um, because the city has the ability to designate areas, but the park board doesn't. And, you know, Vancouver operates a bit uniquely with the Vancouver Charter. And so they didn't pull off that step um, prior to in time um, in order to get it done for last summer. And that's why you saw it happening in areas like, um, you know, Port Moody and other cities around the Lower Mainland, but not right here in Vancouver. So um, the province has stepped up and provided that enabling legislation. So now um, it's really in the hands of the park board to deliver on it.
1: And now I know one of the other things that you are going to be talking about at council is this idea of having more pedestrian friendly areas for the summer. Is that right?
7: Absolutely. I am. Um, I'm a huge proponent of uh, outdoor and public space. And I think we've seen it shouldn't have taken a pandemic, I always say, to be more creative and bold with our use of outdoor space. Um, But we do have the opportunity for Positive Legacy now to retain some of that. So I'm proposing um, a Granville Street promenade that would shut down two blocks of Granville Street to traffic, um, all traffic. Um, Ideally, the goal would be and transit so that we can have space for people to spread out and enjoy a great promenade. And, you know, maybe get some of our local musicians back, too, that uh, can perform in a low-key way because it's been starved for an audience. And the arts and culture sector was so hard hit during the pandemic.
1: This sounds like gathering though, right? And so how do we plan for that and for those kinds of things when we don't fully know when we're going to be able to do any of that?
7: Yeah, it's. Um, I, I don't think it's gathering in the same way. I mean, you're talking very low P here in terms of well-spaced out. We saw it with the, I mean, look at the uh, drinking classes we just talked about. They were really well-spaced and you got a certain number of tables and, and, you know, people sort of came and went and flowed really easily. Um, we do hear, it has to be compliant with public health orders. We do hear It's safe to be outside and we are anticipating that you should be able to start having smaller events um, at some point um, coming up in the summertime. So, um, but again, this would sort of be individual people able to come with your small group and your bubble and enjoy being outdoors.
1: Right. Do you foresee these kinds of things lasting? Like there's some things I think in the pandemic that we were able to pivot and do quickly that people were like, well, what took us so long? And I think drinking in a public place like that, a plaza is one of those things like, is this going to stay with us? Do you think?
7: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I think that it could be the positive legacy from the pandemic. As, and uh, I'm going to be fighting for it because I just think it makes our cities a lot more vibrant and our neighborhoods more livable. These are places you can really go and connect with your community and be outside. People, we're getting increasingly dense in the city. People are living in smaller spaces. They don't have their own backyards. And that use of public space is really pivotal. And I think it's a shift towards prioritizing the pedestrian and, and just people to be outside. So it, the conversation is evolved. I don't think it's just about active transit anymore. It's more around just space for people to be.
1: Right. Is there a plan? Like, is there something underway, either council members or like, is the city of Vancouver working on a revitalization plan at this point for post-pandemic life, right? There's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done, particularly in downtown Vancouver to bring people back. Are we planning for that?
7: Yeah, absolutely. We are. We're looking at sort of a a longer term planning initiative for Granville Street, which is why this pilot, I think, is such a great opportunity to show people what is possible um, and also get people back downtown um, and get them traveling again. We know transit ridership has been down. Um, But yes, we are working on post-pandemic things like bringing the Formula E event uh, that I brought forward to Council last year um, and enabling um, large events and sort of economic starters like that are really important
1: Right, so people can look forward to this summer, it sounds like, drinking once again in a public plaza.
7: Yes, they can. Hopefully in parks too, if, uh, if the park board uh, steps up and, and gets that done for us soon. Hopefully,
1: fingers crossed. All right, thanks so much for your time.
7: No worries, have a great day.
1: You too. Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Council, council votes on Tuesday on this. So they're going to vote to allow drinking at uh, four uh, public plazas this summer. Robson, Camby, Fraser, Maple, uh, so kind of spread out all over the city. But again, still the park situation, right? People want to be able to have a drink in their park. If there's a park in your neighborhood down the street from you, maybe you'd like to go there and have a glass of wine or walk over with a glass of wine at some point and watch the kids play. Something very simple like that, Uh, yet still waiting for more on that. We'll see if the Vancouver Park Board is going to take that mantle up.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You may have had a chance to read the story in the South China Morning Post in the last 24 hours or so, but they did an investigation into the COVID-19 virus and how it affected long-term care homes. And what they found is that perhaps not enough of the outbreaks were actually being labeled as outbreaks. And that meant that there were more cases potentially happening there. Now, for more on this, we're joined now by Isabel McKenzie, BC seniors advocate. Thanks for joining us this morning.
8: My pleasure. Good morning.
1: What did you think when you read the story?
8: Well, I think that the reporter has highlighted one of the issues that my office is reviewing right now as we're reviewing COVID 19 in long term care. And that is the question of what factors, if any, led to an outbreak spreading versus being contained. Because we know that, in fact, most outbreaks, if you, I think we had something like 365 outbreaks in total in 212 different sites because some sites had multiple outbreaks. The majority of the outbreaks were actually contained, which means it was four or fewer cases. But we do have, I think it's something like 47, 48 large outbreaks, which means 25 or more cases. And so the question is, why did, why did some outbreaks spread and why were some outbreaks contained? And one of the factors that may have contributed to that, we don't know yet, we're in the initial stages of this review, is uh, the time between the identification of the first case and the implementation of various outbreak protocols. So in the scenario the reporter has identified is there was a switch in the protocols, I think around the beginning of November, that said, if there's just one case of a staff person, you don't necessarily have to call it an outbreak. You can do this enhanced surveillance. Uh, there were reasons for that policy. And, and what was the impact of that policy uh, We're were in the process of discovering to what degree, if any, did that contribute to uh, a large outbreak? In other words, it started... Mm-hmm. With one case, and because the outbreak wasn't declared, what happened in that intervening period of time? And it's a good question the reporters raised. So,
1: I guess my question with that is, and like, who decided what constituted an outbreak? So, to make that declaration at a long-term care home that we have an outbreak on our hands, how did that happen? Who makes that call?
8: Well, that is uh, as before COVID and and during COVID, the declaration of an outbreak is a public health declaration. So it's not the care home that declares an, an outbreak in a public health sense. Um, the true public health outbreak is declared by the public health officials. Uh, in this case, it would have been at Vancouver Coastal.
1: Okay, so then if there was a delay in making that announcement, I guess is the question is, where did that delay happen in that chain?
8: Uh, my understanding is that that would, the the decision on when and if to declare an outbreak was a decision of the health authority's medical health officer.
1: Okay, so clearly this shows us there's still a lot of work that needs to be done with this system. Right? Do you, you still must have so many questions about what, what has been going on in our long-term care
8: homes. Well, and that's the purpose of the review that we're doing, Simi, um, is where we're, it's a fairly... Comprehensive review, and I know that many people would like the <laughs> would like the review done yesterday. Um, and uh, I am sympathetic uh, to that. I would like it done yesterday as well. But we have to look at a lot of of different factors uh, when we're we're trying to determine why did some outbreaks spread while most actually were contained, because the the number of uh, people that died is linked to the number of cases they were there were. If you could control the spread of the outbreak, you were able to control the fatality. 75% of outbreaks didn't have any deaths associated with them, but 25% did, and some of those had very high rates of death associated with them. So we need to understand to what degree was were decisions around enhanced surveillance versus outbreak, to what degree were contributions of characteristics of the building, the characteristics of the response, all of these kinds of things, to try and understand what could we have done in, with the wisdom of hindsight or the benefit of hindsight mm-hmm. that would have have more contained. And I and I think we do actually have things we we can learn. I I don't actually agree that we just um, uh, you know some outbreaks. Uh, Got out of control and some were contained, and there was nothing we could do about that. We don't know that until we do this kind of review.
1: You mentioned that the strategy changed right back in November, that they went with this enhanced surveillance strategy. Do you think that that strategy was a failure then? Did that go wrong?
8: Well, it's unclear. So, before COVID, Simi, in in the world, I, I spent a lot of years in long term care. We would uh, An outbreak would not be declared by public health until there were two cases, one of which had to be confirmed by a laboratory. So usually it was an influenza outbreak, but it could have been a GI outbreak. It could have been a variety of things. So when COVID hit, uh, one of the decisions that was made is that an outbreak would be declared by public health on one test positive case, whether it's a staff or a resident. And I think we got to that point fairly early on, not on day one, but fairly early into it. And then it seems that at some point in early November, that shifted for a variety of reasons, including the fact that uh, a care home under outbreak would have to cut off visits. The decision was made uh, by uh, public health, I think in at least one or more of the health authorities, that they would uh, reserve the right to declare an outbreak until there was evidence that it had spread, and what that is one of the things we're examining right now. On how many occasions did out did an enhanced surveillance lead to an outbreak? How many of those outbreaks spread? Could could it have been predicted? And, and was this policy of enhanced surveillance in hindsight not a good right. policy? Um, not every enhanced surveillance site went on to develop a full outbreak. Right. Um, so that's what we're looking at. So it very well may be that as well-intentioned as the policy was at the time, um, in fact, it, 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 we should have stuck with the original policy. Right. That's one of the things we're looking at.
1: Well, I guess we'll talk to you then when the review is all done. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
0: Okay, thank you, Simi. Bye.
1: That is Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Ah, that music, we know what that is. Joining us now to talk more about that is Raji Sohal, our Morning Show contributor. Good morning, Raji.
4: Good morning, Simi. A lot of people are talking about how Friends is coming back together. Kind of. They're not making you... Episode. They're not doing new content per se. Here's what's happening. They're doing an HBO special on May 27 is when it airs. And it's basically the cast of Friends talking about how nice it was to be on Friends with some new guests. That are random.
1: (laughs) Okay. This sounds so strange to me because there's so much hype about this, right? And then I was saying this to our producer, Greg, this morning. Am I the only person not excited about this? I see so many stories about it, but they're just sitting around talking about being on Friends.
4: I think they're doing it because it would be super awkward to try to remake. Friends, I think to build to the hype that it was before, I just don't think it's possible. So I think that what they're trying to do is to avoid disappointment. And hey, let's bring in some star power, but the from elsewhere, and we'll go over the episodes that were successful. You know, um, but the star power is super random. Can I tell you some of the, yeah. the characters that? will okay, well, uh, we're going to see David Beckham. What we're going to see? Malala, Lady Gaga. James Corden Reese Witherspoon like
1: well she played she played Rachel's younger sister yeah. uh, Reese Witherspoon was on Friends so that I can understand
4: she, she was she I don't know what Lady Gaga and Malala
1: are doing on that show
4: yeah and then Cindy Crawford was wasn't not she had on an episode Friends. no she wasn't no Elle McPherson was she was yes and it's just, it's all very confusing. I think that and Mindy Kaling, Kaling is on it. Um, Kit Harrington is. I think Justin John Bieber, <laughs> like, was Justin Bieber even alive? I don't
1: think it? so, no. <laughs> um, okay, listen, let me ask you this then, Raji. Do you think Friends, as a show, holds up?
4: Okay, I'm going to get some hate for this, but feel free to uh, send it my way at Raji at cknw.com. It doesn't hold up. It does I would not agree with you. Up. It's really difficult to go back and watch. I've tried, I've tried numerous times. Anytime I've gotten the flu um, or a long cold in the last 10 years, I've put friends on and tried to, and it doesn't work. Um, it doesn't hold up because the content in it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that there's no diversity on the show. And I feel like if something's really old, then I can watch it with this like suspension of disbelief, but not friends. It's like a little bit awkwardly too, too recent. And this group of adults that hangs out in that like one living room for that long, <laughs> you know, what? Just
1: a I bit- have to, there's a house and I pass this house uh, every once in a while. And I just have to mention this. It's down on Southwest Marine Drive. Uh, it is between 49th and Blenheim on the south side of, okay. of Southwest Marine Drive. And it is they what they've done because of, I guess, the restrictions and COVID and all that. They have recreated the Central Perk uh, coffee shop on their front lawn. With the signage and everything. So I did a double take the first time I went by and I was like, wait, what is that? And yeah, it is, they have like the Central Perk coffee shop from Friends right on their front lawn. And I often see people sitting out there just chatting and having a good time. Oh,
4: wow, that is some fan commitment. <laughs> I know, that's I cute. So too.
1: That I'm is cute. That. Yeah, that's the one thing that holds up. From Friends, right? And the rest of that it, you're it's a like, little bit cute. there's other shows like you watch Seinfeld and you think, you know what? They knew how to do this. They did eight years. They went out on top, boom, done. Uh, and that's it. And I think Seinfeld, when you watch it, it's still funny.
4: Yeah. Uh, Friends is not funny. If anything, it's irritating. But I think that although this reunion is probably not going to be that entertaining marketing wise, it's a bit of a stroke of genius. Like, how else would they get anyone to watch this? Um, they needed to make it current. They needed to make it relevant. I'm just waiting for these emails to come in.
1: Raji <laughs> at CKNW.com. I think originally they had done this to for the launch of HBO Max, right? Which is the yeah. HBO subscription service. But then COVID happened, so they couldn't do this, everything, and it got canceled. It got pushed back. It seems to me the moment passed. Like, they probably should have said, yeah, you know what? It was a good idea a year ago. We're not doing it anymore.
4: I think celebrities are still pretty desperate to have more presence than they're, they're getting right now because of the pandemic. So I think that also had to play into the cast of characters that they're bringing into this uh, reunion of sorts. What is your favorite old sitcom? Oh, Seinfeld for sure. Right? Seinfeld, it still holds up. And like, I still, oh yeah, I still laugh really hard at anything from that show. I
1: know. Me too. I feel like the jokes in there are classic, right? You're still, people, even if you never watch Seinfeld, you're probably telling a Seinfeld joke and you don't even realize you're telling a Seinfeld joke.
4: And I still get down with Old Simpsons. Yeah, you can't go wrong.
1: There's so many of them that predicted the future. How can you possibly go wrong? (laughs) Pretty (laughs) much. So, yeah, I can see that those two, but friends, you're right. I think it does not hold up as much. And I'm sure there's people out there who disagree with us. And as we said, feel free to email Raji on that one. Raji at cknw.com. Are you going to watch this?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. See, we just talked about it. Now you said you're still going to watch it. Oh, yes. I'll probably watch it twice, Simi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You'll
1: watch it twice. Right, who was your favorite?
4: Um, I'm going to say that the number, like, the most compelling thing for me about Friends is the fashion. And because they're of the era that's cool again now. I would say that right now it would be Rachel. I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, I saw that. You did, hey?
1: I have more than once been told, including by my children, that there's a little monica in me. Yeah, there's a little monica in me. But I'm coming. okay, that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. You know, I think a lot of people kind of take pride in the fact that, oh, British Columbia is so multicultural, it's so great. So perhaps a rude awakening for people when Bloomberg published an article this week titled, This is the Anti-Asian Hate Capital Crime of North America, and it was about Vancouver. And this all, of course, happening during Asian Heritage Month. Well, We'll talk more about this now with Raji Sohal, our
4: contributor. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. A powerful PSA has been making the rounds. Uh, It's called Eyes Open. And it's from the Canadian Chinese Council for Social Justice. I talked to one of its producers, Lainey Liu. We know her as a Lainey Gossip um, about making the video that has now gained thousands of views, which it did, you know, immediately upon posting. And Lainey hopes the video will help folks rise to the occasion of learning to be anti-racist.
5: The casual racism, how to unpack that. I think that we have to start calling it out. It's scary to speak up. Like, you know, and it's not necessarily scary with strangers. It's almost scarier with people who you know, who you work with, who you share space with. But I think that's what I mean about getting uncomfortable. I think if people don't check it and call it out, then it will continue. These things will continue to be condoned, enabled. If you don't call it out, The fact is that you're an enabler.
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that, Raji. Like, what is casual racism?
4: It's a great question. We hear racism and we think about people who, you know, shout offensive things on a bus or someone who wears hateful symbols. Okay, that's overt racism. And not a lot of people do that. But casual racism, on the other hand, is really common. It's someone making a joke off a stereotype or spouting misinformation, making generalizations about individuals based on their heritage and that kind of thing.
5: You know what? It is casually racist to go up to a Black person and touch their hair and tell them it's so nice. It's so offensive and it's traumatizing for a Black person when that happens. At the same time, there are a lot of people out there who don't know, right? We talk about intent versus impact just because your intention isn't bad doesn't mean the impact of your act isn't bad. So with that in mind, there are a lot of people who who do things like that, who say certain things and they will claim I had no intention is because they don't understand the missing piece of that conversation where the impact is still painful.
1: Okay, that's a a good way to put it. But I think a lot of people listening to that would think, oh, boy, like I've had situations like that either happen to me. Maybe I did that inadvertently.
4: That's okay, Simi. We're all making mistakes. All of us are. All of us have racism in us. Doesn't matter if you're a person of color yourself. I've been victim to casual racism more times than I can count. But I've also had to examine my own biases and what I've been conditioned to believe. And I'm still learning. All of us, me included, have so much work to do. We're we're in this together.
1: And so, like I said, a lot of people listening, they're maybe not sure how to react, like what to do. Like if you see something that you think, okay, that's really wrong. That person shouldn't have said or done that. What is a person supposed to do?
4: That is also a good question. I haven't personally... Ever had that problem when I've seen racism? I have known just to jump into action, maybe not always in the safest way. Like I haven't always put my safety first when I've done so. But, you know, as we're witnessing in Vancouver, um, these racist acts that are happening in public, um, you know, people being berated, uh, people of Asian descent being harassed in public. And you see bystanders, some of them looking like they empathize, but not moving, not knowing what to do. Well, Lainey told us that one of the things that she encourages people to do is take a bystander workshop. There's a ton of them. Many of them are free. You can do them online at home and they'll walk you through scenarios that might alleviate some of your fears so that you can speak up when the time comes. Because I think so many of us want to believe that we could do something would do something if we if we saw racism around us and we'd want to stand up for our neighbors but in the moment we just freeze and we don't know what our role is so like it's okay to reach out for tools and it's okay to admit even that you've looked at some of your past and realize that you've made racist comments in the past or have racist views we all need to be spending this time. I think it's a good use of Asian Heritage Month that we are all looking inwards, doing some reflection and thinking about how we can better show up for each other.
5: And I know that's something you talked to uh, Lainey about as well. All of us can be allies. And the first thing is conversation. Get uncomfortable. Talk about it. I have had to unpack my own privilege, unpack my own um, issues, my own biases, my own prejudices, my own racist acts and thoughts. And I think that... um, I think that that discomfort is the key. And, we, and when we talk about, and over the, over the last year, right, there have been terms that we're becoming more and more familiar with. White fragility, for example, right? And so, you know, and when we see online reaction videos, people getting defensive, people getting upset, that is not part of the conversation. Listen, in North America, we're all under this umbrella of white supremacy. So it's like coded into our DNA in a certain way.
1: Those are difficult conversations to have though, Raji, don't you think
5: like, especially if it's your, if these are friends
1: of yours, if this is the workplace, it's really hard to put your head up and go, guys, like, I don't know if you should say that or if we should be saying this.
4: And you know what? We don't even all have a way of wrapping our heads around this terminology. This terminology is so new for so many of us. So I think, you know, baby step steps are okay. It's okay to sit in front of your computer and, you know, just do racism, anti-racism workshops, you know, 101 and teach yourself, what are these terms? What are the ways that I can show up for my neighbors, be a better ally to them? And, and what ways can we look at the ways that the system is not equal and how we can change it.
1: What I become afraid of though is, and you probably hear the sentiment too, is like, well, I can't say anything now. Oh, I can't say anything. Therefore I'm not going to say anything. So I don't want that to prevent people from getting to know each other. If they're afraid to even ask questions or get to know someone.
4: 100%. So many people are not saying anything because they're scared. They're scared of being wrong. And the, the truth is that we are all going to be wrong many times before we get this right. We'll spend our entire lives learning about how we can show up for each other before we get it right. So, you can say that about anything. (laughs) Yeah, well, we, we can all give ourselves a little bit of grace here and not be too scared of getting it wrong. Yes, good advice. All
1: right, Raji, thank you so much.